A sullen statue stands in a grassy square between the old Ratsal, the Palace of Justice, and the line of spaza shops in our capital city, Pretoria. It's always covered in pigeon droppings and washed occasionally by the rain. The face of the statue is that of a man raised to believe that suffering was the way to heaven. A man whose stern, glum expression betrays a life of adventure, pioneering, battle, and struggle. His house lies within walking distance. It's now a museum, and his body lies only a stone's throw from that. He was the man they called Wimpol. This is Blind History, season four, and we're already on, I can't believe it, to episode four. And we're talking about someone today who's a lot closer to home. You know, we get lots of people saying you should cover this person, you should cover that person. Today, we're going to look at somebody who um, actually is buried just uh, a couple of Ks from where I live. And his name is Paul Kruger. There's a very famous statue of him on Church Square in Pretoria, which somehow has uh, stayed there. Pigeons don't give it any respect. And I've seen it once or twice, but I haven't really given much thought to Paul Kruger before this, I'm embarrassed to say. How about you, Ant? Yeah, I suppose I, you know, I love Kruger National Park. And so I suppose that's where I've got it, or maybe the Kruger coins. But other than that, I haven't really looked too deep in it, except, you know, what we learned in history when we were younger. Well, it's time for us to find out a whole lot more about Paul Kruger, Anthony Medera, Gareth Cliff, and Blind History. So if you've lived in South Africa, you would have heard the name before, but it probably doesn't mean that much to most of us. He lived between 1825 and 1904, so a little outside of living memory. Uh, they called him Umpol, and he was the president, chiefly, of the Zuid-Afrikaanse Republic, the early South African Republic, uh, mostly in the Transvaal at that stage. That's kind of the most important top-line stuff about Paul Kruger. I must tell you, I found his early life a lot more interesting than his political life later on when he became president. Um, he was descended from a woman called Kretua, who was a, a slave girl who was brought from Malaysia. Um, there were a lot of Malay slaves brought to the Cape Colonies, and he grew up somewhere in the in the Karoo, actually. It was like the, the northern western Cape, that area. Yeah, it was Colesburg area. That's right. And and he, he seems to have come from a family of some repute. He also was descended from Peter van Meerhof, who was quite a well-known Dutch settler. The family had been in the country for some generations already by then. And his father, Kasper, and his mother had him in the Cape somewhere. I think you, you're right, Colesburg or something. But that's not where he started making history. Not at all, but he had to grow up very fast because his mother died when he was very, very young. He was eight years old. So his dad basically brought up him and his brothers or his siblings and then his dad decided to join the Great Trek, who was who had been moving up from the south and from the southwest. And when they moved through, they joined on and basically crossed the Vaal River. There's quite a cool story about that. So Hendrik Potgieter, one of the famous Trek leaders, came through the town where the Krugers lived. And he convinced Paul Kruger's dad that there was a possibility for independence from the English. They weren't particularly anti-British, but the idea of building their own country, of pioneering their own land, was really what pulled the Krugers in. And, and, you know, Paul Kruger was a young man at that stage, very young, but he learned to hunt very quickly. He learned to ride horses immaculately. He learned about life on the felt. And, you know, you think about the fact that in 1835, so this is a very young man, 
he went and took part in a battle called the Battle of Fechkop, which was in Heilbronn in the Free State. Now, listen to these numbers, and just to give you an idea of how difficult it was to be both a member of the Matabele tribe under King Mzilikatsi, but also to be a foretracker. On the 9th of October of that year, Mzilikatsi sent 5,000 Matabele warriors to attack the foretrackers. Now, the ratio of Matabele warriors to foretrackers was 1 to 150. And somehow, remarkably, miraculously, these foretrackers managed to win. And Paul Kruger was a young man. He was in his teens, his early teens, and he was loading guns and the women were loading guns and there were only probably a handful of fighting men who could actually fire the weapons. And they still won. I mean, this is just, if you think about that ratio, it's quite remarkable. 100%. And if you look at Mazilakazi's warriors, they were notorious. They were famous for being fearsome, you know, a fighting army. Yeah, also famous for being quite shit at battle, if you ask me. Yeah, I suppose. But I don't know, you know, obviously the guns versus spears, that's always played a role during those periods. Yeah, I mean, actually, there were there were some guns in the Matabele uh, contingent as well. But what happened was that out of those 5,000 warriors, uh, many of them were just sheep and cattle robbers who joined in. And then once they got their plunder, they left. So two farmers and 184 Matabele died. The rest obviously left and ran away. But in spite of their loss, apparently the spoil was great. So the Matabele managed to plunder 50,000 sheep and goats and 5,000 cattle. So they may have lost the battle, but it seems they won economically. Yeah, it sounds like a great war. Yeah. <laughs> so this is what he knew because he was really hunting at a very young age, as you mentioned earlier. And often when he went hunting, his rifle used to backfire or mm. something went wrong with it. And his thumb was, was blown off on one occasion. Yeah. So, so apparently he shot a lion at, at age, he said 14, but one of his friends who was there said he was only 11 at the time. I mean, he shot a lion. And the incident you're talking about was actually an elephant gun, which is a substantial piece of artillery. And it blew off his left thumb. But the best part of the story, I don't know if, if you know this already, but he went home to the camp afterwards with like half of his thumb blown away and he put it in turpentine. That's how you, that's how you made it better. And then it wasn't healing and he felt that his arm might go gangrenous and the doctor said they're going to have to amputate the arm. And he said, not a chance. And he took out his pocket knife and he cut off his own thumb with his pocket knife. No, oh, that's correct. And when the incident happened actually in the bush, he asked his hunting party if anybody had a pocket knife for him. At the <laughs> and they said, no, 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 we haven't. But then directly, as you said, he went home and cut it off. So wow. he was known at this stage of his life to be fearless, very brave, fearless in his hunting expeditions. And also, you know, when he was with the commandos. Well, he may have been fearless, but he was also really uneducated. I think he only had three months of proper education in his entire life. And that just proves to you, you know, we often give Jacob Zuma the gears for having only completed up to standard six. But here's Paul Kruger had three months of formal education and he still became president of the Zuid-Afrikaanse Republic. They settled in Potschefstrom and then obviously in Rustenburg later on, an area which is filled with natural outcrops and, and natural features that are named after the Krugers. But their family farm, he actually got at 16, which was the custom at the time, he got to choose a farm of his own at the foot of the Michalisberg. And that house is still a national monument today. Well, the, the property is, certainly. And in fact, it's one of the places, and we'll get to this later, it's one of the places they say that they may have 
lost or hidden or stashed the Krugerrands, the Kruger millions. But he first of all married Anna Maria Etriesia Duplessis. I mean, these names are just fantastic. And he went off to the Eastern Transvaal with her. And then they returned later on to Rustenburg, but she had caught uh, some illness and she and the infant child died. In those days, it wasn't unusual to marry early. I think his dad and mom had married when they were 15 and 11. Wow. Because they normally didn't live very long. The women were very scarce in those days. So he had to he had to go get his first bride from a very far distance. And there was a story, be it legend or not, that he had to cross the Vaal River in full flood. He had to actually swim across it to be able to, to go and get his bride. And, and we complain about Tinder. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so no problem. He got married a second time. Also to a Duplessis, but this one's name, take this down, Hasina Susanna Frederica Wilhelmina Duplessis. <laughs> Tani Sunny. Tani Sunny. And they had seven daughters and nine sons. And she lived all the way to 1901, dying only three years before him. Tani Sunny obviously was particularly voluptuous. Um, they actually <laughs> quite harsh on, on this young round woman. Um, and, but today, they lived- today we would call that fat shaming. Exactly. And yeah, but they said she was not a pretty girl, but, but he loved her. So, and they spent the rest of their lives together. And they said the soft round woman that would later be affectionately known as Tant Sunny. He became a field cornet, which is like a magistrate or an officer when he was very young. He joined the Volksrat also at a very young age and played a role in a quarrel between two of my ancestors, which I, I really found interesting. You know, the minute history becomes personal, it seems to mean that much more. So, I'm a direct descendant of Stefanus Skuman, who's called the Stormful van in Noorde, uh, who was a, a red-bearded, quite aggressive, nasty man. He didn't have a lot of friends, but he was a force of nature. And um, Martinus Vessel Pretorius, who's also an ancestor of mine. And I didn't know that Kruger had played this role in trying to bring them together a number of times. In fact, he did that with the end goal being that he wanted to unify the Afrikaners into a new republic. He took part in the famous Sand River Convention with Andres Pretorius, who was actually a major influence in his life. He developed quite a relationship with the older Pretorius, Andres, the guy who'd won Blood River and after whom Pretorius named. And he admired, he said, his resolve, sophistication, and piety. And piety especially was something important to Paul. He was a very religious man. He became a commandant general in the army then, which is kind of like the most important officer in that army and eventually vice president in 1877. Very, very young. He managed all these different positions. Yeah, it's, it's quite a, a remarkable life. And you think that he was out there, you know, hunting lions and, and, and taking part in battles in his teens and then going into politics and, and living a really full life. It makes me feel like such an underachiever. He became vice president in 1877. And that was when Britain annexed the ZAR into British territory. Um, that was mostly because they saw that gold was becoming the big thing in South Africa, and they were greedy to make sure that their hands were all over it. The British played on this undereducated part. They saw him as backward, superstitious, yeah, a stubborn old man, and then grotesquely ugly and often called him a literate peasant. So they were hardcore, whereas the European continent loved him. When he got to Europe, he got a hero's welcome which is incredible. I mean, when he got to Marseille, there was a significant amount of people there to receive him. And then the same is in, in Holland. 
Well, in, in some ways, they treated him much like we think of Nelson Mandela today as a freedom fighter, because here he was this man who was standing up to the mighty British Empire and trying to get independence and sovereignty for his own people. So in some ways, I suppose that contrast has been borne out in history many times. One man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist. And he did make a massive difference. I think he was one of the first to rise up against and start the resistance against the British. That's absolutely right. And he sent deputations to London to plead for independence and sovereignty for the ZAR, and they were ignored. And the First Boer War broke out just after that. And it was really a, a fight for independence from Britain. But he'd gone over to, to England a number of times and gone to Europe. And on the second occasion that he went to Europe, he actually met Otto von Bismarck, you know, the famed yes. uh, Bismarck. And he took a balloon ride over Paris, which was a massive highlight for him. Wow. That's tremendous. I mean, you see, again, these lives intersecting. Um, all these famous people who kind of met each other because they were alive at the same time and they were important enough to be in the same room. Correct. Well, he became president eventually, and that was when he succeeded in going to London and pleading with Britain for independence. And they actually recognized the South African Republic then as a separate independent state. But it became an issue that Brits were pouring in to the ZAR or the SAR, as it was at that point. And they were coming in mostly because of gold on the Witwatersrand. And, you know, Cecil John Rhodes and, and Maitland and people like that were very much in favor of, of sending British prospectors. They were prospectors who were coming to try and find their, their fortune on the, on the Witwatersrand. But immediately the folk um, started calling them eight Londers, uh, you know, foreigners. That's right. And, and treated them, actually, the, the folks right, treated them very, very badly in that they had to pay massive taxes and they didn't get the same rights. And there was quite an interesting story um, about uh, the Jewish people. And he was actually, he called them God's chosen people. But there was an instant when he was surveying the city. Um, this is of Johannesburg now. Yeah. Each church was allotted a certain number of stands. And it just so happened that there were double the amount of Christian churches to synagogues. And then they asked why. And he just basically said, they could only receive half the amount of land. It seems that you saw the humor in that because they only read half the Bible. <laughs> well, yeah, it's interesting that he was a religious man, but they were very Old Testament type Christians. You know, the Herforum de Kerk, which he was a, a founding member of, we call them the Doppers in South Africa. That church is well known for really being a very Old Testament based church. They don't allow music in church. They're quite joyless and very Calvinistic. But um, he was one of the guys at the very beginning of that movement. And that's where a lot of the reputation that he has for being this deeply serious, quite grumpy, uh, humorless and bland human being comes from. And he was all of those things, but just not to the degree that he was caricatured by the British. I'm definitely not. I mean, there was one instance where he built a church and then he went onto this roof that had just been built and stood on his head in front of everybody. So he did some strange things as well. <laughs> Well, the Eightlanders were a big problem, and he was re-elected three times on the Eightlander question. The Jamison Raid, the famous Jamison Raid, happened in 1895-96, and that was embarrassing to the British. It also led to the Second Boer War, obviously. And after that Second Boer War, Kruger left for Europe in 1900, and he refused to return home. He died in Switzerland, of all places, overlooking Lake Geneva in a reasonably nice house at the age of 78 in 1904. And he was buried there, but then they dug him up and they brought him back to South Africa. And he's buried in Pretoria at the Helderacker 
which is about a stone's throw from his house. But Gareth, there's a bit of controversy behind this, or uh, quite a lot, in that he deserted his fellow countrymen um, at the time that Lord Roberts, so, so Lord Roberts was basically just at the edge of Pretoria about to take it over. So he basically got out of there and he stayed for quite a long time in the Eastern Transvaal. He had a train that he stayed in and he, I believe that he was carrying his money bags or whatever they might call it. And they crossed into the Portuguese frontier down to Lorenzo Marx, as they called it. And then his wife got very, very ill. And when he captured to Europe, she didn't join him. So, you know, that must have been a devastating time in his life. Seeing the last of Africa, you, know, you would probably believe very much that he'd never see it again. Yeah. And also leaving his wife of, of 50 odd years. Yeah. And part of the story is also that on his flight to Maputo, which is then known as Lorenzo Marx, he was actually basically held hostage on a ship as a political prisoner for a month um, until Queen Wilhelmina of the Netherlands intervened and gave him safe passage where he, he obviously went first to France and then to, to Holland and spent quite a lot of time in Holland. He was very close to the Dutch royal family. I mean, he spoke Dutch. Um, you know, Afrikaans was still a nascent language at that point. He also spoke a little bit of English. But interestingly, he could speak Sitswana and Sisutu almost fluently. Correct, yeah. I think that one of the things that struck me about this guy, Paul Kruger, is that, again, there's an intersection between his life and the life of Jan Smuts, which we've paid some attention to in a previous episode of Blind History, because he actually appointed Jan Smuts at, at a very tender age as state attorney. And upon meeting Smuts for the first time, he remarked to another man who ended up writing it down that he thought that this man had great prospects and would turn into someone quite formidable. Um, and that's interesting because, of course, um, they were very different personalities. And what they ended up embodying was such very different things. And Louis Boerta, which we didn't haven't discussed too much of, but he was very much key in that actual period now where Kruger went into exile. And he was, you know, Kitchener came with a surrender document for them to sign. And it was very interesting reading this, uh, Gareth, on, on the surrender document that the Boers requested a representative and not a military government that the Boers are allowed to retain their firearms, Dutch language to be maintained, the Dutch church to remain unchanged, and obviously the public trusts and orphan trusts to be looked after, no tax on farmers, and amnesty to all at the end of the war. And actually, they the British accepted that. But then Louis Boerter came back and said, look, but the Boers didn't accept <laughs> that. So, so the war carried on for another two years. He's well known, obviously, for a number of things. The Kruger Rand, which is a famous bit of gold currency. It's probably the only gold in South Africa you can legally own. Kruger statue in Church Square, which I mentioned. Kruger House, which is in Pretoria, which is still a museum. And, of course, the Oompel Pape, the pipe that he used to smoke his tobacco in. It's a famous style of pipe, which they say was especially developed for him. Sure. I wonder what, what was the shape of his face or his nose. <laughs> well, I'll tell you something. That uh, Wim Paul, was, he was not much to look at. And in almost any picture from his youth right through to his very old age in Switzerland, he was not a looker. I think old uh, Sonny had a, a tough time. There was one famous South African poet that said the image hewn from the cliffs blow by blow is how they described him. So overall, uh, not a pretty picture, a bit of a cantankerous personality, a, a mostly formidable human being by any guy's estimation, and someone who just wasn't to be messed with at a time where the strong survived and the weak were just cut down. 
and I'm kind of proud that I know a little bit more about him. I agree 100%. And what I'm very proud of is the fact that he was a hunter, but he also, like many hunters, looked at conserving for future generations the wild animals that maybe we would have never seen if they carried on hunting the way they did. Absolutely. And the Kruger National Park is widely acknowledged as one of the most far-sighted ideas at a time when no one was really declaring nature reserves. And this guy decided to chop a huge piece of what could have been profitable farmland uh, right out and say, sorry, this is going to be for the animals. And that's remarkable. I mean, Paul Kruger was a real prototype South African pioneer in every sense of the word. Blind History is brought to you by Taylor Blinds and Shutters. All the episodes are available on the cliffcentral.com website and app, as well as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Interestingly enough, he says he only ever read one book, and that was the Bible. But he apparently could recite whole chapters of the Bible from memory. So clearly, this is the difference between education and basic intelligence, right? Is if you are smart and you don't have a huge amount of software input in terms of education, you can still make an enormous difference in the world. And he clearly did. So one book, the Bible. And he was also, because of that one book, a flat earther until the last day he claimed the earth was flat. Sure, I didn't know that. That's crazy.